0: This morning's text is from 1 Samuel, verses, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, And all the house of Israel lamented over the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Benspah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Amen.
1: All right, today we're looking at this idea of good grief, and uh, every time I hear good grief, I think of Charlie Brown, right, good grief. But there, there is a good grief, there's a grief that is good, there's also a grief that is bad, a grief that results in nothing. And I want to just uh, have you listen to a verse or two from last week as we see the bad example of grief that israel displayed um in first uh, samuel 6 19 through 20 after the ark had made its round all around the philistine uh, world remember nobody wanted the ark everywhere the ark went it, it was causing chaos and god's uh, wrath rather was causing the chaos it was god's hand the bible says very plainly it was against the philistines and so they said oh, "We're going to get rid of this ark and they sent it on its way very miraculously Uh, back to the people of Israel. And then the people of Israel um, saw the power of God and the lack of reverence they had for the ark brought God's judgment against them as well. And here's how they responded. Verse 19 and 20 of chapter six, it says, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh uh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned. They grieved because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall we, uh, and, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So the bad grief is they were broken, they were sad because God had punished them. They were mourning because of the pain of God's judgment, and yet the grief did not lead to anything good. That grief led them to say, so let's get rid of God. Let's just get rid of this ark. We've got to send this somewhere else because it's causing problems so this is a bad example but this week we're going to see a good example of how grief can lead to true repentance and and, and so let's look at our text first samuel chapter 7 verse 1 and 2 says this and the man of cariath Jerim, came and took upon uh took up the ark of the lord and brought it to the house of abinadab on the hill And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at kirith A long time passed, some 20 years. Now look at this. And all the house of Israel lamented or grieved after the Lord. So Israel here at this point begins to grieve over their sin to the Lord. Their sorrow is genuine. It's to the Lord, it says. And we're going to see how that's made evident here a little bit. But grief can be the first step to genuine repentance. Can, it, it can be. And that's what we're going to see today. Um, as long again as it's a genuine grief. And not a grief that says, oh, no, I got caught. And again, that's, that's a problem. Many people show remorse, right? And it can be accompanied with tears, and it can be accompanied with very sad words and, and promises. <laughs> Never, I won't do it again, I'm so sorry. And yet that is just remorse for getting caught. Or that's just a remorse for hurting somebody else. You, so, so, so we've got to understand what our grief is and where it's leading us. So some people are upset because they hurt somebody else. And that's really why they're all upset, just, just because they hurt somebody else. What we're going to see today is that our grief over our sin, should be because we have offended a holy God. We have hurt the very name of God with our sin. That should be our grief. That should be the very foundation of it. That should be the very very purpose for the grief. Not because I got caught, not because I'm even in pain because of some kind of a bad decision, and not because I've hurt somebody else. I must have a heart for God that aches over my sin when I offend him with my sin. These people, it says, are after 20 years with Samuel the prophet proclaiming the word of God, grieving now, they're lamenting unto the Lord. And look what happens. Verse three, the prophet, Samuel, basically says, well, if you're really grieving, prove it, (laughs) prove, prove it. Are you really grieved over your sin? Are you really broken over sinning against the Holy God? Then prove it. So even this prophet shows us this wisdom. It's not enough to hear somebody say, I'm sorry, and then cry, and then weep, and give flowery speeches of why they'll never do it again. That, that wouldn't faze Samuel one bit. He, he says, no, if you're really grieving about your sin, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is, is what he says. Look at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Exclusivity. Your allegiance must be to God and to God alone and he will deliver you out of the hand of God. Of the Philistines. So here we see a remnant, just an echo of the covenant of God's grace. It is a covenant of grace, but it's also at this point in the Old Testament, this, this, this works related in the sense that God says, okay, my people, if you keep my laws, if you obey my commands, if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I will deliver you from your enemies. Then I will bless you. Then you will have life. So again, this This idea of God's grace covenant, that's always been the the idea, but the Bible, again, is this unfolding story for humankind to understand our need for God's grace. So we see, first and foremost, this covenant of works, in a sense. God says, all right, I will make a covenant with you, but you've got to keep my word. You've You've got to be perfect. You're going to obey me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love me and me only. Then, when I see that obedience... Well, then I will deliver you from your enemies. What we realize, folks, through the centuries is that we can't do it. Israel couldn't do it. They never did it. We can't do it, and we never will. That's why we must have the grace of God through Christ. And we'll talk about that as we build this on. But but this is what, is what, what, what Samuel is saying to the people. If you really mean this, if you really want to serve God, then prove it get rid of all of the sinful idols and serve him and him only. And then he will keep his word because he's the God of his word. And so we see that in times over and over in Israel's history, times of their obedience and God's deliverance. But then we see their sin and their breaking of the covenant and God backs off and they suffer the consequences. Showing us again that our need for a grace covenant not just this idea of us trying to do our part and then god promises he will he will do his part but we can't do our part is the problem that's what he's showing us throughout the whole old testament folks what samuel is saying here is that genuine repentance is tangible repentance and we should write that down in our minds genuine repentance is tangible repentance repentance Again, letting us know, that quote lets us know that it's more than words. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's tangible. It doesn't stop with tears and words. It moves on to correct action and concrete action. There's a change. True repentance will meet God's demand. Now listen to this. True repentance will meet God's demand for exclusive allegiance with whatever it takes to obey it. That's true repentance, hatred for my sin, a turning from that to total unwavering allegiance to God alone. Man, that, that, that idea of are we really willing to turn from our sin and obey God and obey his command for allegiance, soul, allegiance, whatever it takes? I'm preaching to myself here. This is, this is hard. And that action in this case is get rid of these idols that have been accepted among our people for years. It's the accepted sins. And folks, we've got that in Christianity. We've always had it. Things that we accept, oh, it's okay. you know. We used to preach on that, but now, hey, that's just, divorce, eh. Any reason, fine god's grace right you know it's just a little lie just to help somebody's feeling you know i mean we we, we justify things over and over Inattentiveness to our spouse that goes on for years and we say, you know it's wait i'm busy i can't help it i mean there are things that are grieving god's heart There's sin grieving the holy spirit and then we'll say i'm sorry because of a bad situation And the pain it causes and we're sorry about the pain and the inconvenience of the situation so we try to say i'm sorry just for a temporary fix just to move on stop talking about i got it i'm sorry now i'm going to move on with no genuine repentance we continue in the accepted ways because we are now the barometer we decide what's accepted as humans looking at other humans The problem is, folks, we get our eyes off of the holiness of God. We're not looking to his standards and his standards alone. We're looking at the standards that we've developed and that we begin to accept. And so this is what Samuel is just confronting dead on. If you mean it, you love God, you're sorry you've sinned against him, prove it. Stop sinning. Get rid of the foreign gods in your life. That's what he says. And in that case, it was very real. We know the archaeologists have uncovered and show us that there's evidence of heterodoxical Yahwism that was going on here uh, during this time. Um, Basically, the idea was that there was a recognized female cohort to Yahweh at this time. Ashtaroth, the worship of of these high places that we see throughout the whole Old Testament, they continue to show up, these high places, the groves. they are these... Idols set up to worship Asherah, the, 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 the female goddess. And what I'm saying is what you see, this, this idea of acceptance in, among God's people of sin, is that over the years, it was fine. We worship Yahweh, but there's also this cohort <laughs> that we also worship, Asheroth. And what God has called for from all of us is total Allegiance to him and him alone, and that's what that's what Samuel is reminding them of. This is this is a similar command that we saw from Jacob in Genesis thirty-five. We saw it from Joshua in Joshua twenty-four. Let's look at that one just to 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 see the continuity throughout Scripture. How God's people must constantly be called back to God. (laughs) Verse fourteen of Joshua twenty-four. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity. And in faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So Samuel's demand here is is basically a recovery of the first commandment. It's a reformation, so to speak. It's it's, let us recover what God has already told us. Exodus 23. 20 verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The first command is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and no other gods. That is it. It is total allegiance to God exclusively. And Jesus echoes this same command. The audacity (laughs) of someone saying... You must worship me and me only. You must honor me. You must love me and me only, above all. Here we see a Trinitarian verse. Really, we see that Christ is God. No question about that. He claimed that in in these verses when he said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is a man calling for total allegiance and dedication to himself. Only God can do that. Yes, exactly. That's what Jesus is saying. I am him. You've seen the Father. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity, but we worship a triune God, one God in three persons, and that God calls us to worship Him and Him alone, totally allegiance, total, total dedication, forsaking all. My I, my family cannot come before Him. The most intimate relationships on this earth—wife or husband, or child and parent. If you're not willing to leave those for God's sake, then you're not in love with God. You are not showing your lead. We're not dedicated to him. We're not trusting him. That's what he's saying. This is hard words. These are difficult words because we're just humans. And our hearts are constantly being tugged and moved to different places to, to, to give our allegiance to. Yet That's the command. That's just, this is, and this is, again, hard, folks. I mean, goodness gracious, how is it that we do that? I'm looking at my granddaughter, my wife here, my granddaughter right there, and the beauty of both of them. And our hearts just, ugh. And it would, what, what did Christ say? If I'm not willing to, to, to leave them as far as my affection and put my affection in him and him alone, I'm not worthy of him. This is not humanly possible. And I think that's the point. I think that's why Christ is so adamant. That's why God is so adamant. He's trying to show us it's impossible in yourselves to love me the way that I must be loved. That's why we have verses that say this. We love him because he first loved us. He put this love in our heart. He bestows his love in our heart that we may bestow it back to him. That's grace. But but this idea of us seeing the need to repent of our sins and be totally given over to God... Is, is what Paul says in Romans 12.1. What does it look like, this idea of repentance, so much so that I repent and I now follow him? Paul was talking about it in, in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, it's by his mercy that you'll do this, but present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, reasonable worship. This is what God has called you to do. But isn't it glorious that whatever God calls us to do, he equips us to do. He gives us the grace, the mercy to do it. If we totally rely on him and not ourselves, we cannot have any of us in this. We're resting in his mercy and his grace. This is what Jesus said in Revelation when he warns the church of Ephesus that she must repent. Repent of putting others before me. Look at verse 4 of Revelation 2. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This exclusive love for me only, you've abandoned it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What is that first work that we're called to do? To love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he wants you to do. Return to the greatest work of all, which is loving me first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So we see this theme, right? We see a theme of repentance throughout the Bible. Repentance. And we've, we've narrowed that word down to simply an evangelistic term. And only good for evangelistic meetings where we we get up and call sinners to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And say this prayer, and now that you've done that, you're good. We narrowed repentance down to a one-time act. And that's not what we see in the Bible. God's people are repeatedly called to repent because God's people repeatedly fall into sin. I mean, this kind of perpetual repentance, Luther reminds us, is basically the reality of the Christian life. Martin Luther said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance, all of our life. He also says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's powerful, but this is it. It's a constant life of repenting from sin and turning to Christ daily, moment by moment. For me, anyway, some of you more pious folks out there may not have to, but man, the call is to live a life not of pious assurance in my profession of faith in Christ. No, I live a life of broken admission that I am weak and my only hope is Christ, and I repent of my pride and my arrogance and my sin. Perpetually returning to the source of my salvation, Christ, relying on Him, resting on Him. That is His grace. But that's that's what we got to have a heart for, folks. We always act like, hey, I'm growing in my Christian faith, and I've reached the plateau, and I'm here, I'm strong, and I've reached another plateau. So I'm, you know, I, I'm really all set. I, I I'm covered. I know it. Man, let him who thinketh he stands take heed lest he fall. That should be our heartbeat. All right. Israel repents. This is glorious. This is a genuine example of a heart that says, God, we are genuinely sorry. We return to you and we turn from our sin." Look at verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. What an encouraging verse. What a glorious truth to see that repentance is possible, (laughs) that it happens, right? That God's grace is seen in the lives of his people when they put away the false gods and they serve the Lord and him alone. There's two aspects of repentance that we see here. The negative and the positive. I mean, the negative aspect of repentance is turn. Put away something. Stop. Stop doing that. (laughs) And the positive is serve the Lord. Seek the Lord. Rest in his grace and obey him. Come unto him, all you who are... Tired and weary and he will give you rest. The joke is easy. His burden is light. That's, that's the positive part of repentance. And look how they display. Israel displays this genuine repentance and faith. Tangibly. It's a tangible repentance. Not just the, oh, I'm so sorry, boys. I mean, I understand that we should have this, this, this emotion and brokenness over our sin. Yes. But it can't stop there. Genuine repentance is tangible. There's evidence. It it moves to concrete action. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. What a glorious picture of this intercessory prayer. As, As Samuel now is a foreshadow of Christ our great high priest, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And boy, am I glad he is. Again, that's part of my salvation. My faith is not in me at all, folks, in any of this. It's all of God from beginning to end. And knowing that every day for the rest of eternity, my security is in the prayers of Christ. You know why? Because the Father always answers the Son's prayers and christ is praying for us if we're his that's amazing and that's what samuel does here he says come gather i'm going to pray for you as as this prophet of god who's been placed here to represent god to you and you to god kind of this mediator again this picture of the great mediator jesus christ the one mediator between god and man so they gathered at Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. And Samuel saw their repentance was genuine. But here's the point. This glorious picture of what is this pouring out water? They actually drew water and water was a rare thing, especially in the Middle East. And they go to the well, they draw water, they bring it and then they, Instead of drinking it, they poured out and they fasted before the Lord. What is that? That's a tangible evidence that, Lord, we are sorry and we are, we are broken before you. And, and, and they're saying, God, your sustenance, your sustenance is more to us than any other sustenance in this world. We need you more than water. We need you more than food. We need your grace. And that's what repentance is for us folks and we say whatever this is i'm hanging on to in this world whatever it is i'm finding my joy in or some kind of thing that's sustaining me i turn from it because lord you're the only sustenance i need that's the picture and now look what happens because what they're doing here is they're saying god we are we are now yours by your grace you have called us to yourselves and we are your people we are your holy nation your priesthood What does the priesthood of believers do? It goes into the world and proclaims the the, the power of God. But the enemy doesn't like that. We still have an enemy, folks. That one who prances about like a roaring lion, seeking seeking who he may devour. That's that's still going on. And that's what happens here. Because verse 7 tells us, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against them. You see, the enemy will always say, wait a minute, wait, those, those guys, they're doing what? They're gathering together in the name of God? They're, they're, they're coming together for the glory of God? They've, they've dedicated to serve him and him alone? Can't have that. And again, how do we see that in practical lives? I mean, churches, if a church, a local body of believers is what I'm talking about, the local body of believers made up of individual believers who their hearts are broken before God, they begin to confess sin. They begin to confess sin to one another. They begin to repent, genuinely repent of that sin, that, that, that sorrow turns to tangible life change and obedience to God and his commands. When a church begins to do that, you better believe Satan will attack It's okay because greater is he that's in us than he is in the world, but it's just going to happen. Look at what happens here. And when the people of Israel heard of that, that the Philistines are coming, they were afraid of the Philistines. And one of the interesting things here is that we learn is that repentance and obedience to God do not always guarantee absence of trials just because i've repented my sin and i am obedient to god and i'm following him that doesn't mean i will not go through trials as many try to tell us today it does mean though that god will be with us through all the trials (laughs) and i'd rather be in a trial with god and his favor than without god in his favor and no trials and I say that, and I just tremble when I say that. And we should. This is a serious thing, folks. I mean, this is what's breaking my heart this week, studying this, that we talk about living for God, and all we mean by that is our little rules and regulations. Live for God, okay, I'm going to put on a suit and a tie, and I'm going to stop doing you know things that I'm not, I'm not going to smoke or, or drink or chew or or date girls who do, and you know, whatever. I mean, we have these outside rules and we're gonna meet, we're gonna check all those boxes. Yep, yep, yep. And now I'm, I'm good. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about this brokenness to say, Lord, my whole life, my every thought, my every emotion, my every deed, I want it to be pleasing to you and I wanna grieve when it's not. And there really is no standard that we can ever achieve in this life where we can say, look, I've arrived as a good follower of Christ, in this life, we're never going to reach it. Otherwise, you'd be glowing. There'd be something, you'd be floating off the floor. You would be glorified. In this, in this, this world, we're not going to be glorified, but we are being sanctified. But that's a lifelong process. So th- what I'm trying to tell you is stop being arrogant, thinking that, well, wow, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've read my Bible every year during that time. I've been faithful to church and blah, blah, blah. Man, you've got, you, we've got to admit... I mean, I've been pastoring for 28 years, preaching for over 35 years. And I feel like Paul, if anybody could boast, I, I could boast more. Man, I have got so many hidden stinking sins, I am broken before God. All of us are. This is the place we need to be. I mean, true godliness will say this. Lord, you are holy, and I am far from that in this flesh of mine that constantly runs from you. I need to be brought back, Father. That should should be and must be our daily prayer and our daily movement in our lives is back toward God. Constantly. Forgive us, God, for this false arrogance that we have arrived. And that we are somehow godly people. Judgment begins in the house of God because God's people are the most sensitive his holiness I mean Christians of all people should be the most repentant not the the sinner out there far far from ever even knowing who God is it's those who have got a glimpse gotten a glimpse of his holiness that are forever plagued by their own sin and constantly drawn back to his his holiness and his need our need for his grace so look at verse 8 the people it says are afraid but look what they do in verse 8 They display again this genuine repentant heart that acknowledges their need for God. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Well, we cannot help, help but notice the contrast between the Israelites of chapter 4 and the Israelites of chapter 7. Because the Israelites of chapter 4 had this lucky charm faith in God. Let's just bring the ark. Hey, we'll bring the ark of the covenant, man, and we'll, we'll overtake these enemies. Let's just, you know, the power of the ark's going to save us. Now, this, this group says there is nothing to save us but God nothing we're helpless i mean this group this israel sees their helplessness and can only resort to desperate prayer now that sounds desperate <laughs> sounds like oh that's that's such a small thing that is the place god wants all of us desperately in need of his grace and relying on him every moment of our lives in every endeavor. Ralph Davis, Dale Ralph Davis, says says it like this. I love this quote. Sometimes the Father may box us in, place us in a situation in which one by one, all our secondary helps and supports are taken from us in order that defenseless, we may lean on his mercy alone More and more, God's people must walk the way of desperation. Prayer. Once we see this, we will no longer regard prayer as a pious cop-out, but as our only rational activity. I mean, prayer is not some last-ditch effort. Better pray. We've done all we can do. Better pray. Prayer must be our only rational activity. Action in life. The only thing we can do is cry out to the sovereign God who can do something about things. The only thing we can do is rest in the one who gives us our life. Where else can we go, Lord? The disciples asked Jesus. Only you have the words of eternal life. So let us cry out to God Lord, give me the strength to trust you, give me the strength to love you, give me the strength. Restore the joy of thy salvation. We never stop praying that. That's what repentance is. Genuine repentance. And the glorious thing about this story is that we see God does what he says he'll do. He's a covenant keeping God. And so notice verses 9 through 11. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him and Samuel was offering up the burnt offering as he was offering that offering the, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and, and struck them as far as below Bethkar God is only doing here what he promised to do to Israel. Now, we got to understand again, I think many times our prayers are out of context sometimes because we're reading Scripture out of context. A lot of times we go to the Old Testament and read a verse that was specifically written to Israel during this time of God's economy, of this this covenant. And and we say, oh, if I do this, then God has to give me victory over my enemies and pour wine into my cellars and give me great produce and great, um, you know, prosperity. Well, we have to be in context here. I I said this at the beginning. The question I have for you, Christian, who prays, Lord, I've repented and returned to you and keep your word to me that I'll never get sick. I won't catch these diseases. I won't get the diseases of these other nations and I'll be prosperous all the time and nothing shall ever befall me. Well, my question to you is, are you perfectly keeping the covenant of God? Because that's the only reason he has to answer that that's that's the context of the old testament i've already said it god said okay people you keep my word you keep my commandment you seek me with your whole heart the the times you do that i will bless you my question is that that was so rare it 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 didn't last why because it can't and thank god that god now as we see in this new testament new covenant of grace he works by grace in our lives Thank God for that. But he still nonetheless calls us to repentance. So notice what's going on here. God does what he said he would do. In this case of this this covenant with his people, they returned to him. They, They got rid of the gods. Their whole heart for that fleeting moment was dedicated to God and God delivered them. I mean, this time they're not hoping in a magical ark to save them. They were standing squarely by faith in him alone. And their only weapon was the desperate cry to an unseen God. Their only weapon was the desperate cry to an unseen God. That's faith. Ralph Davis also says this. Desperation is never in trouble when it rests on omnipotence. I mean, that's... We have to understand that too, folks. Our desperation is never in trouble when it's resting on the omnipotent power of our Father. So God keeps his covenantal promise. Like a lion, he roars here. I love how many commentators that don't want to admit the uh, supernatural power of God just said, well, it was a big, severe thunderstorm, and, and that thunder scared the Philistines. Mm. I think not. I think we have here, obviously, is the power of God. I mean, I haven't seen too many armies afraid of a thunderstorm. And it doesn't even say it was thunder. It says the voice of God thundered. This was a supernatural power of God working on the behalf of his people. Now look at verses 1 through 7. He says, and this is, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 28. This is where it says, where I was telling you, God's simply doing what he said he would do. He said back in Deuteronomy 28, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And God was just keeping his word there, his covenant to his people, which he does keep his word to us. And, and, and so you said, well, then you just said, though, that was Old Testament, that God may not always give us the healings and, and the prosperity. And this is true. And that's okay. But here's what, here's where we, we miss that. Because we say the prosperity and the gifts of God have always got to be some material blessing in this present, transient world. More money, better job, perfect health. I submit to you today that God keeps his covenant with us, giving us even more riches than those things. The rewards of repentance are glorious. The rewards of faithfulness to God are glorious. And yes, folks, there are rewards. Yes. I mean, look at this. Look at 1 Samuel. We're going to see it in these closing verses. Look at verses 12 through 14. This is how it's coming to, going to apply to us when we today repent. Look at some of these things. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer for he said till now the Lord has helped us Ebenezer God has helped us he's saying everything that's happened till now God has done so we're going to worship him we're going to put this stone up to remind us so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel The cities that the the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. That means they took back. They took back their territory. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites. But the big takeaways here are the things that actually apply to us. You say, how does that apply to us? Think about this. Things we see in this text is that true repentance results in what? It really results in revival. Revival. Because only God's, I mean, when you think about this, if I am a believer in Christ, and I have been given life, and then I sin, well, I kind of have, 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 have moved away from God, and I'm lifeless in myself. I, I, I'm feeling, wow, I, I missed this power source because i'm trusting myself now i've moved away but revival is to revive something that is alive but now it's revived it's weak but it's revived and that's what happens when we turn from our sin and repent we are revived i like this the idea of restoring the joy of god's salvation i think that's the definition of revival what is revival it's god restoring his joy of his salvation to the hearts of his people when we repent and are revived, every time we confess our sin, right, and turn from it, it's like taking a long drink at the fountain of God's never-ending grace. I mean, this, this is why we must repent constantly. We constantly must drink to the fountain of life, which is Christ. So three ways this affects us. All right, what we saw in that text is this, three ways that this repentance, if we repent... Here are the three ways it affects us. Number one, we we have relief. There was relief. Did you catch that the, the, the Philistines never again, as long as Samuel lived anyway, attacked them. They had relief from that thorn in their flesh. Relief that I don't have to fight my battles. When I when, when I repent and I'm in fellowship with my Savior and I'm walking with Him, I have a relief knowing that everything is from Him and He is my Savior and He will take care of me. Again, it doesn't mean there's not going to be battles. and It doesn't mean there's not going to be trials. But I have this relief knowing that I don't have to fight those things in my strength. I don't have to somehow find some way to fix this problem. It, I, I trust Him and I obey Him. And as long as I'm trusting and obeying Him... He's fighting the battles. Then there's restoration. I love that. The cities that the Philistines had taken were restored. The enemy loves to take things from us. Satan wants to take our joy. He wants to take our peace. He's constantly cro- crouch, crouch, crouching. He's crouching at the door. The Bible says sin is crouching at the door, just waiting. Waiting to somehow take something from us. And that's what it does. It's a thief. Satan is a thief. He's come to to destroy and to steal. And yet what what happens at repentance, when when a sinner, when when we as Christians, rather, repent and we confess, Lord, I I have failed you. I confess this. I turned from this. I'm, I'm trusting you now. Totally. That which was lost and broken and Hopelessly looking like it was going to never be returned is returned. There is restoration. Marriages can be healed because of repentance. When, when both people in a marriage repent genuinely, not crocodile tears, not little speeches of how great I will improve, but humbly repent and begin to change that attitude, that, that activity, whatever that was, and begin to, to together rely on God's grace alone, there is restoration. That's repentance. That's, that's, that's one of the rewards. What better reward? What else? would do we want then to see things restored? That relationship at work or that relationship with my, my, my children or that relationship with fellow church members. Folks, repentance is at the, the, the heart of all that. we repent we have relief we have restoration but finally that last word of that verse said there was peace we have reconciliation we have peace with God yes through Christ and as David prayed as God's servant after he had sinned he said I repent now restore to me the joy of, of thy salvation so we have this great peace now with God this reconciliation I'm going to close with this. Last week, we saw again a wrong response from the children of Israel towards their sin and toward the judgment of God against that sin in their lives. They said, Wow, we're going to react to the pain of this situation. It hurts, we don't like it, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of the pain. They did not react to the truth. They didn't deal with the truth, and the truth was they were in sin. And so, what I want to ask us to do is not to get rid of the presence of God, not to take that ark and say, get that somewhere else. I don't want to be confronted anymore. Take care of this pain now, just get rid of that which convicts me. No, what I'm asking us to do is what Samuel called Israel to do, and that is instead of running from God in the midst of this conviction that we're under, run to God and admit it. Admit that I have sinned. Father, I turn from that sin. Give me the joy of Thy salvation. And that's what 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10 is about. We'll close with this. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, Paul says, though, uh, though I did regret it, for I see that, that the letter grieved you, though only for a, for a while. As it is, I rejoice, though. Look at this. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, a good grief, godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Uh, A salvation, a deliverance from, from sin that leads to relief, restoration, and reconciliation, All those things he's saying. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief, false remorse, it just leads to death. My question today is, are we willing today, all of us, to to respond to the truth that we sin constantly? Are we going to keep pushing that conviction away? so that we can continue to sin, or will we run today towards the presence of God by repenting from that sin and pleading for God to move in our hearts and to transform us and to give us his love that we may love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Our Father God, I come to you today desperate. Because honestly, in my human heart and mind, I don't even know what I preached today. I don't even know how to express these things in my flesh. I know my sins. Father, I confess and I repent and I pray that you give me this godly hunger, this thirst for you. And I pray, Father, for my fellow believers here, that they will also be broken by, by the preaching of your word today. Because we can express this in human terms. It's not a human thing. It's contrary to us. Only you can do surgery in our hearts right now and make anything I said effective. But Father, we rest upon your word, not my words, your word. May you have your perfect way in your people's lives today. And may you be glorified